0: Thankfully, he does. All right, we are on the Temple Vision 4 of 4B. Four that way I don't have to make it 4 of 5. So, Temple Vision part 4 of 4B. Four and we're going to talk about two other aspects of the vision Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. We're going to talk about the prince and we're going to talk about. The year of Jubilee, and hopefully tie everything up in as pretty a bow as I can do. You remember last time, one of the challenges when we come to the Word of God is understanding this. Our biggest danger is when we read the Word of God and we already know what it says before we start. So, what we want to do is read deeper, slower, meditatively to look throughout the Scripture for connections that may not be as obvious to you and I as they were to the Jewish people. I gave you an example last time. You remember Jesus on the cross? He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For you and I, we would, we would begin maybe wrestling theologically. What does that mean? That means this occurred or, or that occurred. But when G- what Jesus is quoting is the beginning verse of Psalm 22. And if we read Psalm 22 in light of the crucifixion, Psalm 22 comes alive with meaning, doesn't it? So we're looking for connections in the scripture as we we look at the temple vision that we have before us. So we're going to start off talking about the Nasi. Now, if you remember, I talked to you guys about reading. Read chapter 40 to 48. I know it's hard. I know there's lots of numbers. I know there's... He measured this, and it was this long, and he measured that, and it was that long, and maybe it's not the most exciting thing that you have read. But there is a lot of things about the prince that we want uh, to understand. As we look at the whole prophetic vision, we want to keep in mind, here's this prophecy that's coming. In our our standard, normal way of looking at it as premillennialists, as we look at it as the, the... Uh, temple of the millennial reign of christ the temple that messiah will build but remember from our first discussion it leaves us with lots of questions like why are there sacrifices and why who is the nasi now ezekiel uses the word nasi and melek interchangeably if you know the difference between the two you'll understand why that's important the word nasi literally means prince the word melek means king Every time in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's talking about the kings of the past, part, uh, uh, particularly in Ezekiel 40 through 48. When he's talking about the kings of the past, he uses the word melech, the old kings, the kings who failed, the kings who got them to the exile, where they are right now in refugee camps, right? Okay, so now he uses the word nasi, nasi as uh, a... As, uh, the prince or the ruler of this new age. The new age wherein you have a new temple and you have a new focus for the people that are in that time. So there are two categories, people that look at the Nasi. One is that this is a picture of Messiah. So the Nasi is Messiah. He's a Davidic king and he is the Messiah. The second interpretive view is that the Nasi... Is not a Davidic king but a ruler when we look at those none are without a a challenge for example if the nasi is the messiah he has children how does that work he he is not allowed to go places in the temple i'm sure you and i would not say there's some place in the temple jesus couldn't go so when we look at it these are questions so if if i stick to the interpretation that the Nasi, the prince of Ezekiel 40 to 48 is Messiah, I have problems. If And, and I, I'm not saying there's not problems in every direction. <clears throat> our challenge is to try to take our time and take a look at what is going on. Now, here is a weakness that I think you and I have as premillennialists. We are so married to literalism that we can't imagine Figurative or symbolic language describing something to us that may bring everything to a clearer light. Now, it shouldn't be that way because when we read the book of Revelation, we don't have a problem with symbolic language, do we? We haven't had symbolic language or symbolic problems with symbolic language in other places in Ezekiel. When Ezekiel talks about the sea serpent, none of us are looking for a sea serpent, right? We understand that he's describing something, that it's a symbol Of something. So we want to maybe ask ourselves if we abandon a literalist view of Ezekiel 40 through 48, what's the point? What's he telling us? What is he telling? Most importantly, what is he telling the refugees? Because as he gives this vision to the refugees, it's got to mean something to them, right? You don't imagine that God sent a prophet to his people to deliver to them a vision a prophecy to them to the people that are sitting there before Ezekiel but it wasn't for them so there's there's something that we want to be able to grapple with to understand to to comprehend as we look at it and i want to point out a few things about the prince i want to point out a few things about the prince to maybe open our eyes to what can he be describing and how is this encouraging to refugees and then, how was that encouraging to us? Because I'm not saying we're not we're not apart, right? The Word of God is living and powerful. It's for us. It's for them. When we go to Revelation and we read the seven letters to the seven churches, we don't read the seven letters to the seven churches as though it didn't mean something to those churches that received the letters, right? If we do, we err in our interpretation. There's only one interpretation. The author was only meaning one thing, but our application hinges on proper interpretation. Are you with me? And proper interpretation hinges on our observation. Slowing down, reading, allowing for uh, an honest search to comprehend. What is it? What's going on? What is the word of God laying out for us? What's the hope? What is the hope that he's describing for? So the term Nasi is gonna occur 18 times in chapters 40 to 48. And it's going to have some particular descriptions in it that we want to understand. Primarily, one of the primary things that we're gonna see of the Nasi is it's his duty to provide for the offerings for himself and all the people. Now, just for a moment, I want you to put yourself in the minds of the refugees. Who was the last king they had that gave a rip about the temple or offerings or whether or not they were right with God? It's been a long time, right? They always are going to point back to David and they're going to say either he was a king like David or he was not a king like David they'll do the same thing with josiah who is a grandson of hezekiah but the last four kings that incorporate most of their lives the totality of their lives they were all wicked kings and then after the final conquering of jerusalem if you were with us for jeremiah the great heartbreak is you have refugees there in jerusalem and it looks like they're going to make it but they can't stop fighting with each other so they kill the king that they, or not the king, but the leader that the Babylonians leave behind, just because. And then the rest of the refugees run to Egypt, Jeremiah with them, to die. So their their rebellion was so thick and so deep that there was, even though they had opportunity for a future in the land, they still lost it. Because they are so filled with hatred for one another, not just the Babylonians, and they were so driven by greed to who wants to be in power or you shouldn't be in power or I should be that's normal for the human condition right we don't we don't struggle understanding that turn on the news, you can watch it you know i think I think in some ways we're always all not we're often filled with a false hope <clears throat> every time a, a Democratic president is in, we think, well, if we get a Republican in there, just so you know, it was just messed up when they were in there too. Just so you know, they were still aborting babies just as fast as they were under a Democrat rule. It doesn't, it, it's about power. What do I have to tell you? And it was the same way in Israel as Israel's going into the exile. Now this guy, this prince is different If you look at the vision, the central aspect of the vision is the temple, and then secondary to the temple is the nasi, the king, the ruler, the leader. And what's his role? To make sure that everybody has a sacrifice, that he has one and that the people do. So so he is living to accomplish that goal. If we look at Ezekiel 45, verse 16, it says, all the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel. And it shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. So you see, his central duty is not political. It's not to... build a kingdom or to develop more power or greater lands his primary role is centered around worship in the temple providing for the people to be able to participate in Ezekiel 45 21 it says in the first month on the 14th day of the month you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover and for seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten on that day, the prince will provide for himself and all the people of a land, a young bull for a sin offering. He shall provide for himself and who else? All the people. When do you think it's the last time a king cared whether or not the people had what they needed for an offering? When was the last time the king wasn't focused on other parts of the world and other nations and what's going on around him? And this was... This was his focus and how he could build. In fact, for the most part, the last four kings didn't even know there was a temple. In Jeremiah's vision, they were using the temple to set up idols to worship other gods. So here, Ezekiel is saying there's some special things about the leadership in this new community, this new post-exilic community. There's something special about it. We see that the Nasi is responsible for providing the animals the grain so that the offerings may be made for the house of Israel. The Nasi is responsible for the functioning of the festivals. Every one of those festivals points to either the uh, um, incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ or his second coming. And it says here that he's responsible for making sure the festivals happen. Do you do you really think that the kings even attended the feasts? That they cared at all? He goes on the specific mention of the nasi going into the temple with the people. So you have this picture in in uh, um, Ezekiel. I want to say it's forty. I think it's in forty five too. He says you have this mention of the Nazis leading the people into worship to celebrate in the temple, and then he's leading them out. So they have a godly leadership that is centered around temple life, centered around the worship of Christ. We talked about this last time, you know, that that the temple, according to the New Testament, is Christ. He said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and what will happen? Three days I will raise it up again. Paul said, we are, as believers, the body of who? And Paul said, as the body of Christ, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the living God? Right? We, we certainly can't just say that has nothing to do with anything. The New Testament temple talk that is laid out for us. So we see the Nasi, this, this example of true biblical... Leadership in the new age that is focused on worship of Christ. He is near the center, but not the center of importance. In this vision, the center of importance that belongs to the temple. The position that he holds is a position of honor, right? (laughs) So there are honors that he gets, there are things that he receives. It is a place and a position of honor, but it is also, he is also not a priest. He does not offer the offerings. He supplies them. He provides them for the people. He's not the one who does the offering. He is the one that makes sure the people have what they need. When do you think the last time a leader really thought about and cared about whether or not the people had what they needed in order to worship God. The last time a world leader said, you know, we want to make sure that your ability to worship is not impeded. That's not the world we live in today, is it? So when we, when we look at it, this is a picture that, that Ezekiel is painting. The third thing we want to notice is that (coughs) the Nasi is given land. He is able to make his own provision. That means the Nasi receives no taxes. Do you remember when the people wanted a king and they came to the Lord, they went to Samuel the prophet, and they said, We want a king like all the other nations? Do you remember? And the Lord said, are you sure that's what you want? Because if you have a king, he's going to do what? He's going to tax you. He's going to take your children. He's going to send them to war. Well, well, that still happens, right? Are we still paying taxes? Do they still send our kids to war? The Lord said, are you sure that's what you want? Oh, yeah, we want to be just like everybody else. So now as as Ezekiel is having a vision of the new community... He has this vision of the people dwelling together where the central event is the temple and the leadership that the people have, they're not paying taxes to, and those leaders are focused on providing opportunity for the people to worship. It's a little different world, right? In fact, the leader's responsibility is from his own, from the land that he has to provide for himself and for all the people that he serves. That's pretty wild. That's a little different than the way we see the world today, right? That's a little different than the way people view leadership today. Leadership today is supposed to have the best parking place, right? Front row. That's how it's supposed to work. I met a guy one time. I was, I don't remember where he was, Pastor 29 Palms, I think. And, uh, when he pulled up to the church, it was the craziest thing i ever seen. Maybe I, I do this all wrong, but he pulled up to the church and all these people rush out the door and they're all, Pastor, Pastor, can we help you? And they'd take his bags and they'd gather all the stuff out of his car and they'd walk it all in for him. And, and I was like, dang, how do you get them to do that? It was weird to me because that, is that the picture of Christ? Jesus said, I did not come Right. I did not. I came to serve. He came to give his life. And then he tells us, come follow me. So those things are weird to me. This is a vision included in this picture of the temple. We're going to talk about a little bit more in a moment is this vision of what leadership is supposed to be under Christ. A leader who is focused on the good of the people, providing opportunities for worship, leading them. Leading them into worship, leading them out. This is the picture that the Lord is describing. He is forbidden to attempt to extend his land holdings. He's forbidden to use the office to get rich. Do you guys know anybody who... Has not gone into high level politics, not talking about us. High level politics, right? They go in, they go in, and it's a president, and their net worth is whatever, $100,000. They come out bazillionaires. And don't you wonder how that happens? How, what, what deal did he make? Dude, come on. Here, the leader is not allowed, he has his land that's been given to him. That is enough for him and for the people of Israel for the for the things he's required to do, and he's not allowed to extend it. He has what he has, and that's what he has. Pretty crazy. It's it's actually quite a bit different from every nation, national leader across the globe. Nobody else does leadership like that. But this is this is the, the description that the Lord has given. You are not allowed. To increase your land holding. What God had given was enough. And he's not permitted to get rid of his land. He keeps it. He keeps what the Lord gave him. He uses what the Lord gave him. I think that this vision that... that I think the best way, in my opinion, the best way to understand the temple vision of Ezekiel and the Nasi is not to try to figure out how to plug Messiah into that job but to recognize this is a picture. How would, it be, how would it be encouraging to the people who are receiving this vision? The Lord is saying one day there's a future community coming wherein the temple will be central and our leaders, instead of being central and taking advantage of the people, <coughs> ruling over the people, they will be a part of making sure we're able to worship and keeping us focused on Christ. Would that be encouraging to refugees? <coughs> that that there's a world coming where, where the leadership will be right? Where things will be squared away? Where Yahweh will be central? Man. And I think this is part of what Ezekiel is describing. But the last part that we want to look at, the final part, hopefully to wrap up. Well, that's not true. The, the, the almost final part before the final part, is the year of Jubilee. Here's why I say the year of Jubilee is important. One of the things that I told you previously, in chapters 40 to 48, there are 60 numerical references to the year of Jubilee. 60 different times you have multiples of 50 laid out that describe, and you say, well, that's, that could be anything. That's just random that's random. I don't think 60 is random, but let's say I, I grant that. What if in the beginning of the prophecy, Ezekiel said something to direct you to the description of the year of Jubilee before he started giving the numbers? What if in the first verse, like Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabakhtani, what if in the first verse, Ezekiel said, I'm talking about the year of Jubilee, and you should look at this scripture there is one scriptural reference that matches Ezekiel 40 verse 1 that talks about the first of the year on the 10th day of the year, or on the 10th day of the new year. In Leviticus 25 verse 8, it says this, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Now, this will be important because next week we start Daniel 1, so we're going to hear these things again. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet. On the 10th day of the 7th month, on the Day of Atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout the land, and you will consecrate the 50th year, proclaim the liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So if you sold yourself in slavery you got to go home. If you lost you you lost your property, you received your property returned. It was a reset button. And that reset button the year of Jubilee was set on a particular day. It was called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is also a reset button for the year, right? Where the sins of the people are forgiven because of the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> so you have this picture. This picture of the sabbatical Uh, the sabbatical uh, year, and how it was to be put together. There is a a scholar, his name's Bergsma, uh, who wrote a paper that was um, started by Walter Zimmerli. And that paper is called The the, uh, uh, Year of Liberation in Ezekiel's Prophecy. So here's what he writes, my intention and what follows is to develop the argument that Ezekiel builds his temple on Jubilee dimensions and to explore the theological implications of this proposal. The key is Ezekiel 40 verse 1. It starts with this phrase, in the 25th year of the exile. Historically, there's nothing that happened in the 25th year of the exile. Why is he picking that year? Why year 25 of the exile? What's, nothing happened. He's going to say the 14th year from the destruction of Jerusalem, right? We, so we have a date. Hey, He's saying, here's a picture. The worst day in the lives of the nation of Israel 14, happened 14 years ago. What was that day? <clears throat> the day the temple was destroyed. What's this vision? The antithesis of that. The destruction of a temple that had been abandoned by the glory of God now a new community where the temple is central and the glory of God resides in the midst of his people. Why the 25th year of the exile? And then he says, the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month. There is only one feast that works like this. It is the first of Tishri and the 10th of Tishri, which is the day of Atonement, we just read about in Leviticus 25. It shall be the the seventh month before the ecclesiastical calendar for the worshipers is the first day of the month or the first day of the year. Why? Because their sins were forgiven. The nation has made atonement. The day after the the Day of Atonement, maybe they needed another Day of Atonement, but they at least had this refresh, this thing. Every day, every year, once a year, they have this focus on this refreshing of the forgiveness of their sins. A new year has come. We've been released from our bondage on on the 10th day of the month. This is a focus. This focuses into... The Day of Atonement from <clears throat> Leviticus 25. It says this is the only, only one, the only feast that doesn't start on the first day. The only part of a new year that doesn't start on the first day. starts on the tenth day. There's only one. Leviticus 25. What's the subject of Leviticus 25? The year of Jubilee. What's half of Jubilee? 25. In the twenty-fifth year of our exile, why did he pick the twenty-fifth year? Because he wants you to understand we're not all the way to our jubilee yet, but it's coming. Our jubilee is coming. What's our jubilee? A new community with new leadership, where the temple is central, and the king cares about the people and their worship. The new, the jubilee, <coughs> excuse me, is coming. The mention of the destruction of the city sets their eyes as they look at that first verse. Okay, the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of Israel was the destruction of the temple. And in this vision, we're going to see the temple central. We're gonna see the temple in the middle. We're gonna see this. He's describing for them what can only be described as the year of jubilee, a jubilee time. Now, I want you to understand there's a lot of excuse me, a lot of connections that are going to happen throughout here. Remember, 60 times we have references to or multiples of 50. The only association with a Jubilee text is Leviticus 25 and it's the only way to make sense of the 25 years first, uh, the beginning of the year on the 10th day. That should take them directly to Leviticus chapter 25. And It should also be understood that other prophets that were around the time of Ezekiel used similar language. Do you know that there's a section of scripture to describe the year of Jubilee in Isaiah? It's Isaiah 61. You know why that's important? Well, Jesus came, he went into the synagogue in Nazareth, And they handed him the book of Isaiah and he opened up the book of Isaiah to the place where it is written. He opened it up to Isaiah 61 which is a proclamation of the year of Jubilee. Isaiah 61 reads like this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What's the good news? You're not slaves no more. You're being set free. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. What's he describing? The year of Jubilee. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. The time of God's grace. A year of Jubilee. That's how Jesus started his earthly ministry the people wanted to kill him. You remember? He passes through their midst and they're not able to touch him. But he's making a proclamation of Jubilee. Isaiah was a prophet just prior to Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, which we're going to read in a moment. Well, next week. I, don't, I won't be able to get to him today. <clears throat> now, here's some, there's so many things I want to Try to tie together. I know it is not all going to be fully complete in your understanding. Please feel free to ask me about it any time. But we have this picture of the year of Jubilee, all the multiples of 50, Throughout the prophecy, we have these giant gates that don't make any sense to a wall that's little and tiny like a curb. You have giant gates, but what they do make sense if everything about them is to bring my attention to the year of Jubilee. There's going to be the centrality of the temple. The temple of the building doesn't matter anymore because the temple is the body of Christ, the Messiah, the focus that there will be a day when there will be godly leadership who are focused on the people worshiping, the Lord God Almighty, and it's all built around the concept of the year of Jubilee. Now, here's an interesting interesting tidbit. The year actually began on Tishri 1, and they began the celebration leading up to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement's ecclesiastical beginning of the new year, when you hit the reset button. If... I go to Revelation chapter 12. You guys heard Revelation chapter 12 before, right? Revelation chapter 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven. What did it say? It says a great sign appeared in heaven. It's not a trick question. What does it say? A great sign appeared in heaven. Some people take Revelation 12 as what we would call astral prophecy, meaning that all the symbols that he's going to give are an alignment of the stars. Recently, if you've been paying attention to the news, around September, a couple of years ago, they said this was going to happen again. What was going to happen? That the a woman would be clothed in the sun with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars in her head. That she would be pregnant and that her birth pangs in agony of giving birth and another sign appeared, a great red dragon. These are signs, these are all astrological charts in the stars. This great dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, and when she gave birth to the male child, so when the red dragon and the woman and all these things line up, when the stars that are all aligned in this way come together, it is September 11th, 3 B.C., Want to guess who was most likely born on September 11th, 3 BC? There was a bunch of guys that lived under Daniel who grew up under the prophecies of Daniel who were taught from Daniel that the signs in the heavens would point to the coming of a king. You know what day they anointed the king? Yeah. On the 10th of Tishri. You know what day, if, the astrolog, if that's astrological prophecy, if that's correct, the time period 3 B.C. is certainly well within the, the right time frame. We're all pretty sure it's not December 25, right? So we, we come to September 11, 3 B.C., which is the 10th of Tishri, the Day of Atonement. You think that's an accident? Jesus born on the on the on the Day of Atonement, where they would blow the trumpet and sound the year of jubilee. Your debts are forgiven. You get to leave the prison. You get to bind up the brokenhearted. Wait a minute. How did Jesus start his ministry by reading a scripture about jubilee? That's not accidental. That's not accidental. You have this incredible picture, this astrological prophecy out of Revelation chapter 12. Do all those things, are all those things symbols of, a, a? is a dragon real? Is Satan real? Yeah. But is there also a dragon in the stars? Yeah, there is actually. If you look at the star charts from the Hebrews, that they had developed what we would call the zodiac. The, the start of the chart, the chart of the stars as they move how have how have shipbuilders been driving around the world all these years before we had all the fancy contraptions we have now what did they use the stars oh you mean man's been looking at the stars for a long time what do you think you think god would put the story of the gospel in the stars you think his prophets knew that you ever tried to figure out how in the world do we get wise men from the, from the east who know that the king's been born on the day when the king's supposed to be anointed? And they said, what? We saw his, uh, you just thought it was just a bright light in the sky, and they just said, okay, that's got to be a king. Why did? How did all the pieces come together? Man, the whole world starts opening up a little bit, don't it? You start thinking, wow, there's so many things here. In Matthew 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men came from the east and said, Where is the one born king of the Jews? Why did they say that? Because they saw what we read as astrological prophecy in Revelation chapter 12. They saw it. They said there's a king being born. What's this king, what is this king going to accomplish? They said, we've seen his star. Where's the king that will free the people? The one that will bring atonement. The one who is the Passover lamb. By the way, on the 10th of Tishri, on the day of atonement, they chose a Passover lamb for the next year. Who will proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, opening a prison to those who are bound. The year of the Lord's favor. It is the day. Of the new king the king different than all other kings the king that will provide everything necessary for his people <coughs> just as we try to summarize this point i'm going to read uh, a bunch of scripture to you in a second it says <laughs> here's my summary the body of christ is the temple this is repurposed language in the new testament You and I are the body of Christ. Corporately, we are the body of Christ. We, the believers, all who believe and trust in Christ as their Messiah, their Savior, their great God, they are the temple of God. Our absolute rest is in him. He has provided everything that we need. So we corporately today, you and I right now, are the temple of God on earth, the place where God issues his decrees, where he meets with his people. There is a new Jerusalem coming, and a new heaven, and a new earth, and the fulfillment of the return of the king, where Jesus will absolutely and around. I'm not saying there's no kingdom. I'm saying there, his kingdom will never end. The king will come. The new heaven and the new earth are a picture of jubilee, and the final redemption accomplished That's the picture of the temple, the birth of Christ, the day of Pentecost. All the feast days that they celebrated pointed to this reality. In the new heaven and the new earth, (coughs) there will be no temple. Revelation 21, 22. And I looked and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty. Who's the temple? Jesus told us his, you destroy this temple where's the glory of God reside? In the body of Christ? For sure. Yeah. He's, Revelation 21 No temple for the temple is the Lord God. Now I'm going to read Ezekiel 47 1-12. through 12. I hope you've read these. And I'm going to read Revelation 21 22. And I'm going to say They're describing prophets seeing the same thing. Everybody ready? Let's go. Ezekiel 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and he led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits and then he led me through the water, it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand, led me out in the water, it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, led me out into the water, it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand. It was a river I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river, very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. He's talking about the Dead Sea. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. There will be many fish for the water that goes there. The waters of the sea may become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Eniglam, <laughs> and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds. Like the fish of the great sea, it's swamps and marshes uh, will not become fresh. They're left for salt and on the banks, both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. That's toward the end of Ezekiel's prophecy. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from a throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What did that other water do? The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. As for the cowardly or faithless or detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels with seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and he spoke to me saying, "Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb." And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, had great high walls, 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and at the gates, the names of the 12 tribes that the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls, and the city lies foursquare. Its length, the same as its width. It, married 12, it measured, he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by a human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, the city pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel the first jasper, the second sapphire the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian; the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, and the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does that which is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from where? The throne of God. Who's the temple? Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street in the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with 12 kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of, that doesn't sound familiar? For the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb and the servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name written on their foreheads. There will be no night there. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Ezekiel forty-eight verse thirty, last part. I'm going to read Ezekiel forty-eight verse thirty to thirty-five. <laughs> there shall be exits of the city on the north, which is to be forty-five hundred cubits by measure. Thirty-one, uh, or sorry, forty-five hundred cubits by measure. Three gates: the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi. The gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. Read that somewhere. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun. On the west, there will be 4,500 cubits, three gates, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. The circumference of the city will be 18,000 cubits. The name of the city from that time on will be called Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. That is the vision. Ezekiel had. And I believe. It. Is also the vision. John the revelator had. Of a new age. A new earth. A new heaven. A new king. Where God's people will live. Happily. Ever. After. That's my view of Ezekiel forty through forty eight. Want to stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can spend opening your word, studying your word, being challenged by your word. Lord God, I pray that it would be our desire, Lord, to know you more. To be challenged by studying your word, to look for that which your word is describing and laying out for us, God, that we might be able to glorify you and honor you as we <coughs> worship you. Lord, what, a, what an incredible thing. And when I read Revelation 21 and 22 and I see kings of nations coming and bringing glory, <clears throat> and then I look at Ezekiel 40 to 48 and he describes what the leaders of that day is going to be like. The kings leading their people into worship and leading them back home again. A nation, a world focused on your temple, which is your presence in the midst of your people. God, I thank you for (laughs) just the challenge of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us as we study to know you more and more. And we'll give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.